everyone and welcome to this episode of Emotional Food Freedom Mind Body Belly. I am Carrie Ross, Australian Clinical Nutritionist, NLP Master Practitioner, Food Behaviour Counsellor and Hypnotherapist from Mind Body Belly Academy and I'm going to be speaking to you candidly about emotional and disordered eating, bariatric surgery, nutrition and self-empowerment because I help women live their best lives and break free of the struggle between food and living to their best potential. So moving on from our conversation about emotional eating and disordered eating and what is it and where does it come from, we're going to move into what are emotional triggers, environmental triggers and memory triggers and how these influence our eating behaviours. So it's, it's important to understand that events, memories, confrontations, and experiences, they all cause an emotional response that get us stuck in a thought or a feeling. And we're at the effect of that for, for a really long time. So we act in response or reaction to an external stimulus, whether that's a confrontation, a belief about ourselves, a bit of anxiety about encountering a new uh, friend group or a new social situation. And we act in reaction to that, that stimulus seemingly without choice. So it seems to happen like a bit of a hair trigger. And they trigger us to respond in certain ways, either by lowering our mood or causing fatigue, increasing our anxiety. And we tend to replay old programs or negative patterns of thoughts. And these are our schemas, they're our underlying self-told stories about ourselves. And we, and we tend to repeat these thoughts and programs over and over and over again. They're limiting beliefs about ourselves. They're our, our scripts about ourselves, our not good enough script, our can't get it right script, our failure script, you know, whatever it might be. We have this broken record thinking that, that continues to go round and round in circles and reinforce things that we, you know, quote unquote, know about ourselves. You know, and it triggers are the things that we know are there. Uh, they are things that we know hurt us, annoy us, anger us, and cause us to feel like a failure or lesser than what we, again, quote unquote, know that we are. Uh, you know, and these are things like being burdened by unbalanced responsibility or perhaps judgment or blame, uh, a fear of failure. And even, and this one's a quite a common one that you might not have even thought about, the fear of success. Who am I once I reach the goal that I said I always wanted to reach? If I remove self-sabotage out of the way, if I remove all my blocks and barriers and actually attain the thing that I've been saying is the problem all along, who will I become? And what kind of life do I need to live up to? Uh, what about a trigger of a social gathering Who's going to be there? What judgment's going to be placed on me? Who's going to be wearing what? Are they going to look at me? Am I going to be judged? We've got the feeling of obligation, responsibility, that overwhelm that comes from those things. Physical fatigue and pain. You know how you feel when you're so tired, when you're just bone tired or you've got a pain flare whether it's rheumatic or it's fibromyalgia or whatever it might be, but when you're in a pain flare, it seems like your whole mood and your whole world is crumbling down. Fear of mistakes, you know, setting off that schema and underneath the surface that I'm not good enough, I'm going to make mistakes, I'm just to stuff up. I'm just going to fail no matter what I do. Not feeling like I'm good enough. Not knowing enough. God, I feel stupid. 
feeling lost or alone or unlovable or unworthy of love, not feeling loved, accepted or supported. And, you know, and those, those triggers, they instigate a response, a learned behaviour, a reaction that in many ways has been used as a defence mechanism or a soothing tool to combat those negative feelings we experience. So we're always trying. It's like everything that we're doing has got a positive intent. It's got that positive intent or a secondary gain to make us feel better and make us feel more whole in our lives. You know, there's not a, a single thing that we do in, in this regard that has got a negative intent. We don't go out of our ways to make ourselves feel shit or to hurt ourselves. There's always that sense that we're just trying to soothe the pain that's already there. And we despise our triggers, right? We hate them so much because intuitively we know that they don't serve us. But it's like this, this proverbial flogging of a dead horse. We keep on doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But if somebody said that was the definition of, it, of insanity, right? But it's just because that those triggers are part of this misaligned program of ours, one that no longer works. It's a re redundant routine. You know, and we're, we're just trying to find a better option or find a, a better way, but without having that resilience, without having the skills there in the beginning, without knowing already, well, what do you do? Well, let's keep doing the same thing over and over again because up until this point it worked very well as a coping strategy. It got us to today, and I've been doing it a really long time. But your triggers are always there. You know, they, they, they've been there because they're for a long time as uh, the initial coping strategy and now they've been reinforced by action. And this makes them perpetually armed. They're always armed to go off. They're always armed, ready to support a behaviour, which up until this point has always been with a positive intent, right? So they're ready for the influence or experience and we're constantly in that state of readiness. We're ready to be reactive, a constant state of ready to be reactive. Well, having that perpetually armed trigger keeps our bodies in a state of stress. It can prohibit us from experience, reinforce negative thoughts and, and limiting beliefs, you know, such as I cannot do this, I'm a failure, this goal is too big for me to achieve, I'm just not enough. You know, and the, the hard part about this is throughout our experience, throughout our, our mental filters and the way that we understand our world and the way that we've modelled world, we have this filtration system where we delete, distort and generalise all the information we get so that it fits into some very succinct little baskets of ours, this model of the world that we created so that when we're out in the world and we experience these things, we kind of select a best fit model or that kind of sort of feels mostly like fear. So let's put it in the fear basket. And that kind of sort of a little bit resembles anger. So it goes in the anger basket. So things get generalized so much. And that reinforces those really blanket and universal statements of I'm not good enough or I can't do this or that's not for me. And so we're in this constant state of generalised, ready to be reactive. So when we eventually disarm that trigger, when we finally find the skills to disarm that trigger, it's such a breath of fresh air to be rationally responsive. We're no longer ready to be reactive. We're rationally responsive. 
So that's, that's part of that extreme accountability. I'm being rationally responsive. I'm, I'm taking a moment to pause between the stimulus and the response and choosing. Because in that space between the stimulus and the response, between the event and my action, there's choice. And it might be a split second. It might be a nanosecond. But in that nanosecond, your brain has the capacity to process so much information. In that split second, you can make a choice. How is it that I'm choosing to take this on negatively when I can choose to look at the flip side, when I can choose to look at a different perspective, when I can choose a different action that aligns with what I want and my goal. And remember there's those two pathways that we were talking about that, that we can, you know, that control our food-seeking behaviour. We've got our homeostatic and a hedonic pathway. We've got our true hunger pathway and we've got our emotional eating pathway. You know, so the first one responds to physical energy needs. We need the calories for energy to perform our daily tasks of living and maintaining our bodily functions. So the homeostatic pathway triggers true hunger and true thirst. And the second, the hedonic pathway, you know, this is the ready-to-be-reactive pathway. And when we experience external stimuli, stimuli such as environmental triggers or social or emotional stress or fatigue, these can trigger a response from us, making us feel tired, annoyed, anxious, depressed, angry, flustered, lonely, overwhelmed, so many different things. You know, and then those those neuro pathways that respond so well to that that hyper palatable, so like the super super tasty, ever processed, sugary, fatty, fast food, junk food stuff that we always go for when we're feeling low. Those neuro pathways that get set on fire, uh, like amazingly joyous fireworks when we take in that sort of stuff. They say, "Hey, you're depleting your feel good hormones." We need more of those to make you feel better. We need more of those to make you feel calm and safe and balanced and comfortable. We need more of those to make you forget that this thing has made you feel uncomfortable. And then they trigger cravings. The foods we choose, those hyperpalatable foods, they taste so good. That feel of the guilty, sweet and rich. They trigger the pleasure and reward centre from our brains. And, and well, there you go. Woo! You have your production of feel-good chemicals to help relieve that stress and make you feel better. And if you do this, every time you are stressed, it becomes habitual and a learned response and you're creating that feedback loop. Your body learns how to reduce your stress, yet your mind berates you for it. It tells you off. It, it says that you're not good enough because you've done it, which is a problem because it then again triggers that same pathway, right? And that's where that cycle, that response loop keeps on going around. The cycle reinforces itself. So the first thing that we need to do is identify the trigger. You've got to know what your triggers are and what purpose they serve. What have you been using your response to achieve? And the, and the first part of that is figuring out when it first started. You know, and it's, I guess triggers are like icebergs. You know, we only tend to notice what's on the surface and we miss what's hiding in the depths. We only see the little bit that pokes out from time to time and we bury the rest away. All the while it's growing roots and knobs and, and you know, insidiously getting under the pavers. And every now and again, a few sprouts, you know, pop up. 
and you pluck them out, but you don't realize what kind of a tattered mess is underneath there until you dig up those papers, right? So you've got to understand where the roots of your triggers actually lie. And a lot of the time, the roots of your triggers are... You know, they can be rooted in 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 the fairly, you know, horrific or traumatic events. But a lot of the time they're just rooted in, in childhood routine and childhood understanding and some of the understandings we had about our life when we were seven years old. You know, so it takes a bit of introspection and looking into your memories, into your experiences to ask, when was the first time I felt this story about myself or felt like this story about myself was true? When was the first time that I felt this way? All right. How is it that I interact with food this way? Well, let me give you some examples here. I want you to just think about your family dinner routine. Just sit for a moment and think about what it was like when you were a kid, when you were growing up. What were meals like? What was dinner time like with your family? Was there a routine? Who prepared the meals? Was it mum or dad? Was it nana or nono or, you know, oma? <laughs> Who was it? Who was responsible for helping? Who was responsible for doing the dishes? Was it a single person event? Did anybody, was anybody allowed in that kitchen with the, the chef? Or did everybody have to go away and be quiet while meals were being cooked? Did everybody sit at the table or did you all sit down on the couch and, and turn the TV on and, and not communicate or did you sit alone? Was it communal and was it happy? Was it an experience full of conversation? How was your day? What happened today at school? Or did, was there strict rules? Did you have to be quiet at the table? Don't eat with your mouth full. Don't eat with your mouth full. Don't talk with your mouth full. Don't talk with your mouth full. You know, use your manners. Did you have to clean your plate, finish everything that you were served up or, or starved, go to bed hungry? Was food used as a punishment? Eat it all and you can have dessert. If you eat it all, I'll give you something sweet afterwards. If you're a good girl or a good boy and you eat it all up, so finish it all or you go to bed hungry. And what if you couldn't finish it all? Were you in a family where your parents would put plastic wrap over it and say, well, you can eat it for breakfast then as punishment, so food was used as punishment? Now think about if you were a good child, or naughty for that matter. Were you rewarded with treats or was food withheld? What if you were sad or hurt? Were you, were you cheered up with a little bit of something? I mean, think about it, you know, when you were a kid and, and you went to get, you know, your flu needles or your flu jab and... What did the doctor do? You just got stuck with something sharp and it hurt and you were scared. And what did the doctor do? Well, he gave you a lollipop. Now that's a food fear response if ever I've heard of one, right? What if your parents were separated? And, you know, you were spending time with, say, dad. And when you spend time with dad, it was all about going out for ice cream and popcorn because he only, and he only ever got to see him on the weekend. So in his mind, he thought it would be better to spend time with you having fun rather than bo doing boring activities. So you went out to eat, you had ice cream, and they were all happy and fond memories associated with tastes and treats and getting to spend time with your dad. 
right? So happiness gets associated with food. Well, another scenario is what if food was scarce in your house and then uh, there never really was a lot? Did food become a currency and a symbol of love, care, security and safety? Mum and did, Dad didn't have a lot of money. Mum had to work two jobs. You had to come home from school alone, let yourself in and make yourself something to eat. And generally it was, you know, Vegemite sandwich, if that. So that food became a source of comfort in a lonely, empty house. You also have to become independent. You became the parent because there was no one there to soothe your emotional needs. Did you have to fend for yourself? Was food able to become your company? See, you may not have realised that this experience began to write those programs for you, right? And the writing of those programs started to develop in that childlike mind of yours, that seven-year-old voice that said, alone, lonely, eat something distracted, not lonely. Very, very simplistic language. In your brain, brain didn't get more complex than that. But as you went along and you started to generalise the information that came your way, you started putting everything in the same basket. That kind of sort of feels like loneliness. Let's put it in the same basket. And you already had this response of eating takes away loneliness because that's the, the, the response loop that you created in, from that young age. The response loop is eat everything on my plate, clean my plate, I'm a good girl. So I eat even though I'm full and I finish everything on my plate even though I'm full because that means I'm good. Eat all eat equals good. Eat it all equals good. Which now you turn out, you know, in your adulthood and you see that as overeating actually feels bad. But it's a habit that I'm finding very difficult to break. So we would understand where our triggers come from and do some research into that and your personal research, some, some self-investigation into that. You know, and, and looking into that, we, we find where our triggers come from. And when we know where our triggers come from, we can ask them then the next step. What for? What was the secondary gain? What was the, the meaningful or positive intent there? You know, and what it is, reflect on a scenario where you would commonly engage in emotion-based eating and can you pinpoint where and when it developed? Because um, there's always a root cause. And I help people uncover those roots in the Break Free and Beginning Again program and we find the trigger and we disarm it for good. You know, we find strategies that match. But remember, when you're thinking about emotion-based eating, you've got to consider the full spectrum of emotions that will trigger that emotion, that will trigger us to eat, full spectrum. And there's so many of them. Have a look at all the different ways that you can describe anger, all the different ways that you can descri describe disgusted or sad or happy or surprised or bad. And then know that there are another set of explanations for those ones as well and again there's no shame or embarrassment to be had in identifying that you're an emotion-based eater these are all co coping strategies that you have developed to what well, you've, you've developed over time uh, to deal with complex and uncomfortable emotions that worked really really well and those comfortable uncomfortable emotions and complex emotions that you experienced as say that seven-year-old that didn't have the emotional re resilience and didn't have the emotional maturity at that time to be able to combat those emotions. So they did the next best thing. They adapted. 
So congratulate yourself on surviving so far and you, having a coping strategy that has lasted you so long. It has saved you on some of your darkest days. But now you're feeling a little bit strong and you're feeling a little bit courageous and you're feeling a little bit ready to let go of that coping strategy and find one that matches and align with your goals and live up to your best potential and break free and begin again and find yourself some emotional food freedom. All right, so in the next episode, we're going to talk about your when and your how and figure out how you use these coping strategies and what was the reason that you developed them in the first place. Tune in for the next episode.